It's 1951. There are no Latter-day Saint temples outside North America. In Guatemala, Clemencia Pivaro prepares for the 2,000-mile journey to the Mesa, Arizona temple to receive her endowment and do temple work for her deceased ancestors. Elder John Witzo suggests building a temple in Europe will encourage saints to stay and strengthen the church in their own lands. These powerful examples of faith are next in chapter 36, Carefully and Prayerfully. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Alan Parrish, an Emeritus Professor of Religious Education at Brigham Young University. And we also have with us Melissa Inouye, a historian in the Church History Department. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, to begin today's podcast, we would love to know, Alan, how it is that you came to research and write about John Witzow. I began my career in church education in Southern California at UCLA. The first uh, week I worked there, the church had purchased an old sorority house on campus. It became a wonderful institute. And we had to move our uh, library from an old rented space. And uh, so we moved into our library, had us there. But there was one, uh, really a 50-gallon barrel of just miscellaneous things. And when I'd get some time, I'd go in and sort through those. When I got to the bottom of the barrel or very near, I found a lot of manuscript-typed pages. And as I read them, they weren't identified, but I could tell they were related to Brother Widsow. And it goes back to when he taught at the University of Southern California. Hence, they have the Widsow Foundation at USC. And those were very impressive to me. And so I thought this guy kind of piloted the way for me. So I had that connection. My next assignment was back east at Harvard. Harvard is John's alma mater. He spent some wonderful years there, made some fantastic contributions. And again, I connected with him because of those contributions and those experiences. I shouldn't leave out that his hometown is my hometown in Logan, Utah. And I say hometown, that's where he moved when he was 11 after leaving Norway. I have since been to Norway, and in 2017, we put up a statue to John in the capital of the island of Freya, and the people in Freya, an island of five, 6,000 people, want him to be their example for youth, that their youth in Norway can accomplish anything they wish to, and that's John's life. Well, thank you, Alan. And Melissa, it's so great to have you back. We would be really interested to know if there's a particular story in the Saint series that has really inspired or interested you that you'd want to share with our listeners. I love the story that we are going to discuss today about the temple trip, because this is such a theme in the global church about how hard people work to get to the temple. Why don't we begin by talking about Clemencia and her story, and we begin the chapter with her in the Guatemala City Central Station. And as we think about the nature of the saints' books, and because of the work that you've done on global histories, Melissa, I wonder if you would mind sharing us some of your thoughts or reflections about how this volume has done with including the voices and perspectives of those who are often overlooked from histories. 
Well, volume three is amazingly strong in terms of showing us the global church. And that's what's so exciting about volume three is I think it's going to be super unfamiliar to most everyone who reads it. Um, The stories that I read were certainly unfamiliar to me. And um, when you compare that feeling to how we feel when we're reading about someone leaving some sort of American county or someone planting some sort of crop in a desert place, like those stories are super inspiring, but they're also so familiar. But when we read these new stories that we've never encountered before of the history that's always been there, the Latter-day Saint sacrifices and their experiences and their fortitude under all these different situations, standing up to Nazis or traveling such a long distance to get to the temple and braving armed militants while doing that is just incredible. Well, with the chapter opening up with these conferences held at the Mesa Temple, can you tell us a little bit more about these conferences? Well, people came from all over Central America. For example, one story that I recently read was from a member of the church from a Central American country. They assembled in Guatemala, and then they traveled from Guatemala to Mexico. And when they were passing through Mexico, they slept for, I think, a couple of nights on the floors of local Latter-day Saint church buildings. They literally just slept on the floor. There was no bedding, nothing like that. So uh, this brother said in his history that the really smart people slept on the stage because that was wood which was a little softer and kind of more warm. But he and his wife, who had just been married civilly and who were traveling to be sealed, they had to sleep on the concrete floor. And there were no blankets, there were no sleeping pads. They were just themselves on the floor, trying as best they could to sleep. And sometimes he said they slept on the buses. Sometimes there wasn't a chapel where they could stop. And so they just sat in their bus seats, which weren't like super lazy boy recliner type things. They were just bus seats. And they just slept there, the husband leaning on the wife, the wife leaning on the husband. So such a long journey to get to the temple. And when they finally got there, they spent several days at the temple to kind of make it worth their time, but just incredible. Melissa, you briefly shared what this temple trip must have been like for the saints traveling to Mesa. But I'd like to know too, what are some other examples of temple trips that you know of that you could share either around the same time period or even up until today? So I've got two stories that kind of immediately come to mind of really difficult trips. And one is from El Salvador, when there was a young woman named Felisa, and she left her home in El Salvador to make that journey to the Mesa, Arizona temple. It was in 1975. They were traveling through Sonora, Mexico. And when they were about 40 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, the caravan of saints traveling to the temple suffered a tragic accident. A truck passing the other way lost control of its trailer. And in the crash, she fractured her clavicle, her rib, and a bone in her leg. Um, She was taken to the hospital nearby to recover. While she was in the hospital in Nogales, she was visited by President Spencer W. Kimball, who gave her a blessing. And she stayed there for two or three weeks before she was finally able to join her mother and brother at the temple in Mesa. And there they were sealed together as a family. And while she was there, she also received her patriarchal blessing. A line in her patriarchal blessing gave her pause. It said that she would place her life in the Lord's service. She was at that point in her mid-30s, but she thought maybe I should serve a mission. And she was still not really in the great shape to do this because she still had debilitating health effects of the injuries suffered in that accident of that trip to the temple. And to make a long story short, she began to prepare to serve. 
she became the first sister missionary from her area to serve. She was 35 years old and she thought that she would have had to be in a wheelchair, but she says, uh, soon I could walk and more. So she was able to, to walk as a missionary. So I guess it's a kind of complicated story. Even though you're going to the temple, it doesn't mean that you're going to be immune to people's agency. The driver of that truck made some terrible choices and some people were hurt. And she suffered from those effects for the rest of her life. That's one story. Another really cool story is from really recently. So when the Abba Nigeria Temple was announced in 2000, right when it was announced, the Latter-day Saints in Cameroon started getting ready to go. Cameroon and Nigeria are adjacent, and they knew that that would be their temple. So one week after the dedication of the temple in August 2005, they set out on this trip. And they came together in these little clumps in these different places like Yaounde and Douala. And then they came to a place in the middle of the night called Kumba. And that's where they were going to transfer to a big three chartered buses. And they were going to make the longest leg of the journey. So 525 kilometers or 326 miles. That's like Paris to Frankfurt, or it's like San Diego to Las Vegas. So a significant distance, but on a good day, it shouldn't be too horrible. Now, unfortunately, when they got to this place in the middle of the night, they discovered that their three chartered buses were not available. Instead, there were two vans. So three chartered buses, two vans. So they smashed into these two vans, three chartered buses with the people smashed into two vans, and they kept on going. And the next segment before them from Kumba to Ekok, which is the border town uh, where you enter Nigeria, that was um, 200 kilometers or 124 miles, about a third of their total journey. Theoretically, you should be able to do it in three hours in good conditions. However, there had been heavy rains and the roads were full of thick, deep mud and the vans were so heavily laden, they bogged down. So they had to get out and walk. Many of them, they're in their Sunday clothes. So they were trekking through the mud, digging, pushing, pulling the vans. At each mud hole, they would have to send a person forward to walk into the hole to see how deep it was. And so it took them 25 hours to do these three miles from Kumba to Ekok. And the next morning when they arrived at this border town, they had 18 more hours to go. Uh, and after 18 more hours, they arrived at the temple uh, where they were very happy and they were received by the local saints and they stayed in Tatumhausen and they stayed there for a while and they did their ordinances. And one of the members who went on this trip named Gwen Moise said, all of us felt the hand of the Lord during that trip. But that was like a super long trip. And when I just think about how easy it is for my kids and I to go to our local temple, it just seems incredible that they had that resilience and the work ethic and the faith and the persistence and the patience to make that trip. Thank you. Today, many members live reasonably close to a temple. I live maybe three to four hours away from a temple, which we have to think a couple of times like, okay, when are we going to go? We have to plan the trip. But there have been other times where I've lived literally minutes from a temple and I've been able to just go whenever. And I think for those Latter-day Saints who've had to plan a trip to the temple, the experience can be really powerful. It's a powerful experience for any Latter-day Saint, but for someone who's traveled for days through uncomfortable circumstances, it can be a rich experience that, that really strengthens a person's faith. So thank you for helping us better understand that. We'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about another character that's really prominent in this chapter, John Witso, of course. 
And I think readers might be surprised to read about how the Swiss temple actually came to be. And in this chapter, we get a little glimpse into the idea of this temple. But first, we'd like to know how serious was emigration to the church in Europe? Why was this such a big consideration? I can try to answer that. (laughs) When Brother Witzel returned from Europe, now, of course, he was born and raised there. But in 1927, he and his wife had just lost their only son that reached adulthood to pneumonia. And they were very, especially Sister Witzel was at her wit's end. She said she was pining away when they got the surprise call to go to Europe. And they stayed three years, and they were doing so well that President Grant extended it for three more years. So after six years, about the time John came home, I think it may have been a letter to President Grant, or it may have been a report to the brethren, but he said there were two problems with the European saints that he wanted to emphasize. The first was emigration. He didn't specify why it was a problem, but I know in all of the mission presidents' conferences, most of which were held in Copenhagen, and so there'd be 11 mission presidents plus the Widsos, so 12 presidents and their wives, and they would discuss mutually what's the biggest problem, and to them it was emigration. And I think what they were saying is every time they get a saint far enough along that he could be a branch president or he could be a Sunday school teacher or something, they leave town. And so I think they were saying that the weakness they were feeling was because of emigration. And that affected everything. They were still, I remember when I was a mission in most of my areas in England, I think I was branch president four or five times, never set apart for that. but. We just met with a few investigators and a few members, and we conducted all the meetings. We rented the halls. We cleaned up from the parties the night before, and we taught all the classes. Now, we would invite new members to speak, but the saints in Europe did not have the experience to run a branch. And it was really beginning to hurt them. And so one of the first campaigns the Widso set out on was to make them independent, to give them responsibilities. And with all the other mission presents joining in, they accomplished that pretty well. So the saints could handle it. And that was really necessary because of the wars. You have one war just before the Widso's got there and one after. And there was always a sense of war. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And we had the depression going on in this country, so we couldn't send, didn't send nearly as many missionaries as they were used to. And that turned out to be a blessing. Brother Witzel called it that because that meant they needed to put local members in responsible position, give them experience. So inexperience was kind of a cause of immigration. So it was a big problem. The second problem he identified when he got home is facilities. I was surprised how many times we had to arrange for facilities in British towns that we didn't have a church within hundreds of miles. So that became a problem. Always in rented halls and the saints didn't relate to it. And so they didn't have the social programs and experience that they wanted. So immigration was number one. And that's 1934. Well, it seems remarkable that this incident with John and the mission presidents was 70 years ago, essentially, and it has had such an impact on the church in Europe, but globally as well. And 
there are going to be many readers who haven't thought twice about how temples came to be in international locations. And this might be a fascinating insight into how the church operated in the mid-20th century. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how new insights such as this could be of use or interest to Latter-day Saints today. I think that it would be very hard to grow up in the church in Europe in the days that we were discussing. The young man, young woman joined the church. They uh, had a strong testimony of the restoration, the prophet Joseph Smith, uh, the restoration of the priesthood, temple work. They wanted the ordinances of the temple, but because they're in Europe, they can't have them. They're just not available financially for almost all of them. That was almost impossible. To get a round-trip ticket would be doubly impossible. So if they're tempted to emigrate anyway, we'll go once and get our temple work and stay by the temples. And to not be able to do that, John occasionally talks about second and third generations who had been raised in Europe, always wanting to have the blessing to the temple, never able to have them. Ever. When that's the highest ordinances in the gospel, you love the gospel so much and you can't have it. And that's the way the mission presence felt. And that's why they would always request that they get a temple. But in his addresses, he makes a case that obviously says we need a temple for the well being of the saints. Well, Alan. We were introduced to John Witzow in volume two, and here we are almost at the end of volume three where we say goodbye. And in many ways, this scene just highlights some of his accomplishments. There are so many threads that come together in John's life with his missionary work, genealogy, temple work. He was a native European, but an adopted American. And we would love to know from your perspective, what would you say are some of his greatest accomplishments and what are some of the ways his experiences contributed to the building up of the church? Well, he always remained a European, adopted America. I think that's okay, and many people adopted him. I think John is mostly known for his academic accomplishments, and that's where he got introduced to temple work and genealogy. In 1892, while a student at Harvard, Susie Young Gates, Brigham's favorite child, I can say that, <laughs> had to go back to Boston to research the Brigham Young family. There were no records in Utah at that time, so she had to go back, had to pay her way back, had to rent a place. She was there six or seven months on that trip, and it wasn't her first nor her last. And that's where John became acquainted with her, because she would attend church with uh, John was one of eight students that were taken back there to come back and shape Utah higher education. When John graduated in 1894, Harvard University then gave two awards to outstanding students. One to the student who demonstrated the greatest depth of learning, and the other to a student who demonstrated the greatest breadth of learning while at Harvard. I think perhaps the only time that the same student received both awards was in 1894, and it was John A. Woodson. Harvard offered him four jobs. BYU wanted him. Brother Talmage, and this is the one he wanted, was to be the new president of the LDS University in Salt Lake. Because of the financial panic of 93, that was foiled. 
So John came back, ultimately to Utah State University, where he became an outstanding researcher in agricultural chemistry, particularly irrigation and dry farming. And the whole world is benefited by Witzel's work. So I think his academic accomplishments were primary. He became president of Utah State, became president of the University of Utah. Both of those universities were a real crisis at the time that he was made president. So you ask about accomplishments, I would say, first of all, education and the things that went along with his career in agriculture. So his academic career is pretty sterling. From the time he was put in church leadership as commissioner of education, he was introduced to our topic for today, temple and genealogy, by Susie Young Gates. He felt, at least in his experience, that doing genealogical research and temple work leads to our greatest spiritual experiences. And that's really one of the great contributions of Elder Witzel. Well, and Alan, I think John Witzel for many people is an inspiration because he's able to balance so many different things. He's a scientist, he's a believer, he's a specialist in education and in research, and he accomplishes so much. But at the end of the day, he also has a strong set of morals that he lives by. And in this chapter, we have a great quote that we use from his book, In a Sunlit Land. Let's go ahead and listen to the quote. I hope it will be said of me, I have tried to live unselfishly, to serve God and help my fellow men, and use my time and talents industriously for the advancement of human good. I think there are many Latter-day Saints who can relate to this and who are trying to live a life in a similar fashion. I would just be curious, just to kind of finish this off, if you could tell us then how other leaders and members reacted to John's death. His death was pretty well known. It took a long time. You, you recall the great mission that Elder Benson went on to take care of the post-war situation. Mm-hmm. That was all designed by Brother Witzel. Yeah. He was the Europe representative, and he knew all about food and distribution and all of that, and he designed it, but his doctors wouldn't let him go. That's right. And so they looked around and found, uh, I think, the youngest new apostle who was also an agricultural genius. And so Brother Benson went in place of John. So John's sickness lasted, and that's 1945. He died in 52. Even though he says in his journal he'd get an annual physical from his doctors and everything's fine, <laughs> you know, we knew he was declining. I know that a great many were surprised when he died. He was favorite general authority to a lot of people. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing just some really great insights. It's been great having you on. Thank you very much. He would sure be thrilled with the number of temples we have all over Europe now. I suspect he's had a hand in that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.